in Strava's defense, you don't have to upload to Strava when you run. <laughs> that, yes. <laughs> you know? And so, so, so maybe the policy should be, hey, people working at CIA Black Sites, don't upload your data to Strava. <laughs> right. Don't use a GPS recording device. Right. Hello, everybody. Welcome back to the Most Pleasant Exhaustion Podcast brought to you by ITL Coaching and Performance. Thanks for listening. I'm George Darden. And Patrick Ollinger. We are endurance athletes and coach here in Atlanta, Georgia, coming to you on Super Bowl Sunday. Yeah. Patrick is excited. I am excited. I grew up a big football fan. Uh, I come to find out I didn't exactly have the physical requirements for that sport, so I decided to change to a sport that uh, rewards a man for having a concave chest. So, <laughs> so here I am, running marathons and half marathons. Yeah, not not a whole lot. Of, I mean, I guess a couple of weeks ago we talked about that, that one pro football player who, who decided to get out of pro football because he was worried about his brain and mm-hmm. then started doing half Ironman triathlons, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, but yeah, not a whole lot of people who find themselves, well, let's see, am I going to... Am I going to play college football, or am I going to run college cross-country? <laughs> <laughs> I would love to meet that human being. Yeah, exactly. Not, not, not a whole lot of crossover there, I don't suppose. Maybe they're kickers or something. Yeah, mm-hmm. I don't know. I don't know. Um, but, uh, but anyway, uh, Patrick, you actually, dare I even say, dare I even put you on the spot and say who you're pulling for this, tonight in the Super Bowl? Yeah, so I am definitely pulling for the Philadelphia Eagles. Um, so those of you who, who don't know, um, I used to do some freelance work for some NFL teams. And one thing I did back in the day was interview players when they were at the NFL Combine, which is when the NFL takes all the college prospects, flies them into Indianapolis, and does a bunch of physical tests on them to kind of see how healthy they are. And one of the... They they actually log all that information, too. Oh, yeah. It's all public. I mean, you know that... You know how big a player's hand is, how long their arms are, how long their torso is. Yeah. Like, they literally measure everything. And so, and so they have a research bank of that. And so, like, I remember David Epstein in his book, The Sports mm-hmm. Gene, talked a lot about that. Because he, yeah. he said, there's this idea that, oh, no, if you just work hard, then, then you can totally make the NFL and da, 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 da. And he said, well, let's look at the people who are actually showing up. And yes. found that they were major physical outliers like in terms of their, their wingspan and, and things like that. So anyway, uh, but I thought it was interesting. Keep going. Oh, it's fascinating, yeah. In fact, it's almost my favorite part of being a fan is kind of figuring out what physical requirements kind of make somebody a good player. Because um, right. there's a lot of hidden data in there, and you hear a lot of stories about how, oh, this player, we thought he was going to be great, but he turned out to be terrible. But then when you dig into the data, you realize, oh, it's because they don't have the necessary arm length. Mm-hmm. So then they can't engage in the blockers quick enough like almost like a boxer so then they always take the first hit Mm. therefore they're never going to be the one like initiating contact there's a lot of little things like that in there um a big one for wide receivers is the flying 30 which is like the speed that they have from the 10 yard they do the 40 yard dash Mm -hmm. then they say what is your speed from the 10 yard mark to the 40 yard mark Mm -hmm. not the first 10 yards but the kind of flying 30 Mm -hmm. and they found that that is a hugely predictive like jerry rice was an all-time great at that metric really even though he did not have a great 40 yard dash because acceleration was poor Mm -hmm. so you can kind of start to see uh the science behind the chaos that is pro football right right so anyways back to the story so i was working there and i got to interview nick Foles, um because he was just coming out of arizona 
And so I, I'm rooting for the Eagles, just so I could say I interviewed another Super Bowl. And, and, and Nick Foles is the, he's the, he's the quarterback for He's the, the quarterback for the yeah. Philadelphia Eagles, yeah. Very good. Um, I'm pulling for the Eagles just because I dislike the quarterback from uh, from the New England Patriots. <laughs> and and the reason why I dislike the quarterback from the New England Patriots is because I'm straight up a hater, as, as so many people are, particularly from Atlanta after last year. So <laughs> it, The uh, PTSD a lot of Atlanta fans <laughs> suffer from last year's game is pretty remarkable. Yeah. I saw somebody uh, posted on Facebook this morning, a friend of mine on Facebook posted that he was uh, he was at a restaurant or a bar last night, and he took a picture of a sign that they had posted in the window saying that uh, so as to not be reminded of the bitterness of last year's loss in Atlanta, they're going to be closing the bar from four o'clock until until <laughs> ten o'clock or something like that. Tonight. So yeah. Um, but anyway, anyway, did you uh, did you listen to our interview with Pete? I assume you did. You were there, oh, obviously. But of course. Yeah. So so thoughts on that, like as you as you listened to it and reflected on it over the course of the past couple of weeks since we recorded it. Yeah, to me, uh, a couple things. One, I loved how we are so blessed to be in a sport where what works for the elites, or a lot of the lessons you learn from the elites also work for the non-elites, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. Um, so like to get back to football, since we were just talking about that, you can't watch an NFL team and then make them try to run the same routes. Mm-hmm. Like a Little League team, run the same routes and run the same plays. It just doesn't work. Right. Um, but in running, it's a lot of the same principles because we are so sim- like, you know, the elites versus kind of the I hate to say non elites, but maybe everyday runner. Mm-hmm. We're both people, you right. know. We're we're you know both groups are made up of people with you know the same kind of aerobic systems, the same cardiovascular system. So it's a lot of the same lessons. Yeah. The only difference is one group is running faster than the other, yeah. and so I always find that fascinating. I, I I do too. I think it's super important, um, and and I thought that was one of the big takeaways from it as well. I will say, um, um, I do feel compelled to mention. Let's not over apply that, right? Um, because the life that they live is so different. Mm-hmm. And so if you look at like like an elite marathoner and say, oh, well, they do three marathons a year. Why can't I do three marathons a year? Well, there's there's a little bit more that goes into it than that. Um, I think it's particularly with multi sport athletes. Um, in two regards. One, in, in terms of racing schedule. Um, if you see, like, Daniela Reef, who's, you know, world champion, um, the Kona world champion, and the 70.3 world champion right now, um, she'll squeeze in another race uh, after Kona, um, and she did last year. And it's, and, and you want to say, oh, well, if she squeezed another race six weeks after Kona, then I, maybe I can do one after Kona. So if Daniela Reef does it, I can do it too. Well, she's doing that, number one, because she has a whole bunch of sponsorship responsibilities that she has to fulfill, mm-hmm. right? She kind of has to do that. And right. after her own devices, she she probably wouldn't do that. Yes. Uh, she would probably take that time and recover, but but she doesn't have that option. Mm-hmm. Um, and and uh, number two, she's doing it because, um, well, I can't remember what number two was going to be, but that's the main thing. Yeah. <laughs> oh, oh, I remember what I was going to say. Number, number two, she has resources at her disposal by virtue of being a pro, that speed her recovery. That she yes. can she can sleep more after she doesn't have to go back to work a nine to five job, you know, the following week or anything else like that. You know, and so so she can recover better. Um, and I think that's one thing. I think that's probably the single biggest thing that that really separates pros from from non pros mm-hmm. is pro and, and a pro will tell you this, um, is the ability to take the time to recover uh, from workouts and enforce from races as well. Um, and so, yeah, if you look at Danielle Reef and say, oh, well, six weeks later, she was doing Ironman, so I can do that too. Well, probably not, actually, because she's a pro and she lives a much different life. Agree 100%. We talk all the time, and this is true of any sport, really, about 
what the athlete does like on the field or on the race day, etc. Mm-hmm. But that's only half the battle. What really makes them a pro is how much they get to recover. Yeah, for sure. I mean, you know, another extreme example is like LeBron James gets three hours of, you know, top-notch athletic treatment after every game. Right. If you're playing basketball at the Y, you don't have a world-class <laughs> masseuse waiting for you. Yeah. At the end of the game. Plus, you don't have three... You, in your life, you don't have three hours to give to that. Right, right, exactly. You know, On you, a daily basis. Yeah. You have to go You have to go back to your to your day job. You have to go back to your kids. You have to do all that sort of thing. And so, so yeah, you just don't have that built in the way the pros have that built in. The other th- thing I would always caution people when you're looking at pros um, is, is when it comes to equipment. Mm-hmm. Um, so many decisions or so many factors go into a pro's decision about what equipment they wear. Um, so for triathletes, that would be bikes and saddles and wheels and stuff like that. Um, for runners, obviously that would be shoes. Mm-hmm. Um, I mean, so many different factors play into the fact that Shalane Flanagan is sponsored by Nike, the fact that Galen Rupp is sponsored by Nike, the fact that, that Desi Linden is sponsored by Brooks. Like so mm-hmm. many different factors play into that, that you can't just be like, oh, well, Galen Rupp wears Nike. They must be really, really good. Right. They must be good enough shoes. Like there, there, there's, there's too many factors that play into that. You can't just download their gear choices to yourself. Right. Um, so anyway, um, but yeah, I totally agree with you on, on that though, that I think that, that just looking at the training principles, like Pete said, you know, um, you can have, uh, uh, Tyler Pinnell sitting across the, from a camper, um, and he literally runs a half marathon in half the time that the camper does, which is not saying, it's not saying anything bad about the camper because Tyler Pinnell runs one one thirty for a half marathon. <laughs> yeah, right. <laughs> um, but, um, but, but. The two of them have the same. They they still need to, to recover. They still need to see a massage therapist. They still need to to do hard days and easy days and and, and those sorts of things. I think that's important. Yeah. Um, no yeah. matter who you are in running or in triathlons, oxygen and water still important. <laughs> <laughs> um, and you know that's one of the great things too. I think about endurance sports generally, um, uh, running, um, but also cycling and, and certainly triathlon is that you share the course with pros. Mm-hmm. And and you know, Super Bowls tonight. Um, and we, as we were saying, if like a little league kid, a uh, peewee football kid couldn't be like, oh, that's great. They're, they're playing, you know, football tonight. Where are they playing? It's in Minnesota, isn't it? Yes. Yeah. Uh, in Minnesota, I want to get on the field and play the, on that field tomorrow. You can't do that. Right. Right. Or with them. Yeah. Or with them even. <laughs> yeah. Whereas, whereas Ironman World Championship, you're on the course with them. Mm-hmm. Right. Um, uh, the Tour de France, you obviously can't ride with them in the Tour de France, but you can ride before or after. And people do. Um, there's actually a whole uh, a whole Tour de France um, thing um, tour where where you get to ride the entire Tour de France mm-hmm. course a day before the tour, mm-hmm. um, uh, a sportif, you know, and and I think it's it's super cool, yeah. you know, that, that that we get to cross over with pros like that. Um, other thoughts you had? I had a couple thoughts. Yeah. So another thing I found interesting was he talked about how he wanted to, in, in many ways, expand the the net. For training professional runners here mm-hmm. in America, yeah, and I just always find it fascinating, kind of that human capital aspect of any sport, right? You know, the more opportunities you give people to succeed in a sport, mm-hmm. the better the entire country will be yeah. in, in their how they're represented. You know, the more two twenty marathoners you have, the more two ten marathoners you have. Couldn't agree more. Because you're just trying to essentially widen the net so you can catch more people and develop more talent. Not that everybody's going to work out and everybody's going to become Olympian, but the more you can try to catch the diamond in the rough that got lost maybe at a poor college or maybe they weren't high, highly recruited out of high school because they were a soccer player. Mm-hmm. You know, you can the more you can kind of provide uh, a structure for people to succeed, the better off the country and the community will be in general. Yeah, totally. And, I, I, I couldn't agree more. And, like, I got to tell you, the, the community that's really suffering from that right now is soccer. I mean, that you know, 
we've we have kind of railed against people within the soccer community have kind of railed against how we develop youth soccer players for twenty years, mm. and it finally kind of came to fruition. And the United States will not be playing in the World Cup mm. because you know what happens is uh, you sign up your kid at six years old to be some elite Premier League club soccer player. Mm-hmm. And then the whole goal is just to win games on that six-year-old team, that seven-year-old team, and there's no development of fundamentals. And you can just see the United States has not developed the talent Mm -hmm. for a country as big as we are Mm -hmm. that you would expect. And for a country that likes soccer as much as we do. Right. We have have huge participation rates in soccer. Yeah, I don't don't know about the soccer development model um, as well as you do, but I I, I do think, and I think it's interesting, and I think he's right, um, that there was a real uh, gap and, mm-hmm. and the development chain, um, and we talked to on Facebook to a couple of people about this. That you have um, you have people who who go from high school to college, and college coaches, good college coaches, recognize there's a transition there, and you need to, to develop them slowly as freshmen, sophomores, and then they're they're winning NCAA championships as juniors and seniors, fantastic. And then the next step, though, to go from NCAA champion is that now you have to compete on the world level. Now you have to make the Olympic team and try and compete in the Olympic. That's a huge step up too. Yes, and we had nothing in the in the late '90s and early 2000s. We didn't have any formal means of of doing of of doing that of of, of nurturing those runners. Um, and so Zap and a few other groups, the ones that he mentioned, uh, have kind of stepped into that void. And now we have 80 people in various groups around the United States who are uh, sort of in these development programs, being. Um, you know, under the tutelage of coaches and being provided health insurance and facilities and equipment and even a small stipend, he said. Um, and that's that's great. I mean, mm-hmm. that's, that's a super important link in the chain. Um, and, you know, we saw that in 2016 at the Olympic Games, the, the American distance runners had the best Olympic Games they've probably ever had, or at yes. least they've had in, in since World War II, you know, since since the modern era, uh, since the, the advent of, of African runners. Right. Um, and so... so uh, I think I think that's part of it. I mm-hmm. think that the fact that the places like Zap um, and the Furman program and and the Hansons program and all that stuff are, are starting to fill that gap, mm-hmm. and that's great. I mean, you heard him say that that what would have been a top five time ten years ago is now the thirtieth best time. Exactly, um, and and that's great. Um, that's that's what's going to make the United States successful on a world stage. Mm-hmm. Um, a couple other things he said that I, I think are worth mentioning: the things that people talked about. Are asked about one was stretching. Um, we've had I had a couple of people reach out to me um, and, and talk about stretching. And you'll recall that that I, I I mentioned to Pete. I said said ten years ago, twenty years ago, you told me that that you weren't, didn't believe in stretching. How do you feel about it now? Um, and he said, well, you know, we do a lot of dynamic warm ups and that sort of thing. And he said we always start our easy runs slow. He said, but I but I I still come from this point of view that that if you're stretching a muscle, you're putting doing static stretching on a muscle, you're putting it under a lot of stress, and if you have micro tears or even an injury, you're probably going to make it worse. Um, and so we had several people that, that that came and said, okay, so should I stop stretching now? You know, or I really like stretching, or or you know, is this something I I, I, I shouldn't do? Um, and so I kind of wanted to talk a little bit about that real quick. Um, first of all. Anytime you talk about stretching with runners, and anytime like a new piece of research comes into um, into the running world, 
uh, you have to acknowledge the fact that runners don't like to stretch. Mm-hmm. Yeah. <laughs> and, and it's almost and, universal. Yeah. I mean, it's kind of like weights, like you and I have talked about yes. that before, right? <laughs> yes. Um, and, and what's more, we have all of these examples of people like Elliot Kipchoge, who we talked about before, who is viciously unflexible. Um, you have Ron Clark, um, who is a, a, an Australian Olympian from back in the day, a multi-time world record holder, who once said, the only time I've ever been injured is, is when I stretch. Um, you have all of these anecdotal examples of, of people who don't stretch or are inflexible, and we're like, well, they're still fast. And so anytime, anytime there's, there's a conversation about stretching, you have to recognize the fact that runners don't like to stretch. Um, and so I, you know, it kind of comes against that context. That's one thing to keep in mind. Um, the other thing to keep in mind is that the research on it is kind of equivocal. Um, you know, there was a USATF study that came out about 10 years ago in which on their website they, they, they polled lots and lots and lots and lots of runners. Um, but it was just riddled with all sorts of methodological issues such that, that they never actually got it peer-reviewed or, or put it in a journal or anything because it was such a badly designed study. But yet a lot of people still cite it because their ultimate conclusion was uh, the stretching doesn't make any difference. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, Pete mentioned some, some research out of, out of Houston. Um, there's another one that's kind of well-known from Cal State Obispo uh, that showed that, that folks who had less flexibility in their lower legs were more efficient runners. And so you'd think, oh, you know, you're tighter, that, that, that would mean you're more efficient, that's a good thing. Yeah, okay, true. Uh, at the same time, there was a, there was a, a study in the American Journal of Sports Medicine uh, several years ago that said, said that issues with your knee and your patella, like patella, uh, patellar tendonitis and stuff like that, those are directly linked or there was a correlation between having uh, uh, tight quads and knee issues. Um, and then more recently, there was, there was another article in the uh, Foot and Ankle Specialist Journal um, that showed that, that tight calves uh, and even tight hamstrings could lead directly to plantar fasciitis. So there was a high correlation there. And so the point being is that the research is, is equivocal. It's not totally clear. Now, quick side note, there is good, clear research on dynamic stretching before workout. Mm-hmm. Um, the Journal of Strength and Conditioning had, a, had a, a pretty definitive study just a couple of years ago that said that people perform far better uh, in workouts and in races if they do some dynamic stretching beforehand. So, yes, by all means, continue dynamic stretching. We will on our Tuesday morning track workouts, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, continue to do some dynamic stretching. Um, but And Patrick might have a different take on this, but, but here's kind of the bottom line for me on that. Um, first, I would say stretch if you want to get if you want to stretch. If you enjoy stretching or stretching is part of your routine, by all means, stretch if you want to stretch. Um, as you get older... And there's, there's a shortening that takes place, a natural shortening of your muscles take place. Or if you sit a lot, then stretching can be helpful in, in lengthening those things. Um, however, the, the other thing I would say at the same time is that you should recognize that stretching is stressful on your body. Yes. Um, and I think that's, that's kind of at the heart of what Pete was saying of why he doesn't like to have people stretch is because it is stressful. And so... Um, I think a lot of people think, oh, well, you know, I'm, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to cool down now, and so I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to stretch to cool down. If you're really kind of stretching, that's not really cooling you down all that much. I mean, it, it hurts, and, and you're putting your, your, your joints and your, your muscles under strain. That's not a bad thing. We do that all the time. <laughs> right. You know, that's what training is, is putting your muscles and your body under strain. Um, but, but don't think that stretching is just kind of this bonus thing that doesn't cause stress on your body. It does, and... And if you're injured or, or something else like that, yeah, it could potentially make those things worse. Um, go ahead. I agree. And then the other thing I, I, I like to point out, too, is a lot of people just have this idea. I mean, we grew up in PE being told, all right, stretch, bend over, touch your toes. So that's what we kind of have a, mm-hmm. as our model of stretching. Mm-hmm. Stretching can also be 
getting up, walking around, and doing leg swings. Yeah. Finding an empty office space and doing yeah. leg swings. Yeah. That's stretching. I mean, yeah. it's really just using kind of the rubber bands you know, that are your muscles mm-hmm. and kind of getting them looser. Yeah, totally And agree. so to me... the. I always love, you know, the more active stretching. Get up, take a walk, mm-hmm. as, as kind of Pete mentioned, after a long run. Mm-hmm. Do some leg swings every hour or a couple hours. Mm-hmm. It doesn't have to be the static stretching. Um, in fact, I find the static stretching is actually, they're finding more and more that it's very hard to isolate the muscle correctly. Mm-hmm. So a lot of the stretching that we, static stretching we do individually on our own, it hits the target, but it's kind of like, you know, scattershot, mm-hmm. as opposed to when they have an actual athletic trainer, like, grab you and say, okay, mm-hmm. do this, do that. Mm-hmm. So, um... But dynamic stretching, because you're going through that full range of motion, you're, you're, you're getting that spot. You're actually hitting the target, yeah. right? Yeah. I mean, because when you're walking, you're doing what you were created to do, what those muscles were intended to do. Mm-hmm. Um, so that's kind of my, my thing on stretching. Yeah. You know, and as you said, if you enjoy it, if it makes you feel better, go for it. Like, mm-hmm. you know, you don't need to take it out of your routine. Yeah. But I don't think it's something where... You have to do it. You know, this is or like this is not something where, um, it, by not doing having a stre- a static stretching routine before and after a workout, mm-hmm. you're hurting yourself or hurting your performance. Yeah, I mean, we'll have you know we'll have some guests on the the podcast later this year. I have a couple in mind. I'm not going to call them out by name just in case they refuse to come on the podcast for whatever reason. <laughs> but, um, <laughs> but but we we have a couple of guests that I know that that are fans of stretching and that think that stretching is super important. And mm-hmm. so and, and and when the time comes, we'll ask them about it as well. Um, but uh, but for now, for those who are looking for a big takeaway on stretching, I would say you know, I, and I think you're right too. I think it's a good point that you know, stretching doesn't mean you're bending over and you're grabbing your toe. You're doing a hurdler stretch, you know, or something right. like that. Like all that stuff that oh, I mean, like I said, runners don't like stretching. Like like thinking about that, I'm just like ugh. Um, but but you don't you know you don't have to do those sorts of things. Um, but I would say you know start moving around. So anyway, on that note, the other thing that really stood out to me um, was the part he said about walking. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and I actually, in the two weeks since we recorded that interview, we, we released it a week ago, but we recorded it two weeks ago. Um, I've actually made a point to start trying to walk a little bit more often and park farther away. And, um, you know, and, and uh, I, you know, I work on a college campus and so I've, I've found myself saying, okay, this is, I'm going to park here and I'm going to walk to this other building or I'm going to set a meeting in this other building, you know, across the other side of campus in order to make myself kind of walk. Kind of, right. What you and I talked about a few weeks ago with, mm-hmm. with you know, the, the colleges, you, you sit for an hour and then you stand up and walk across campus, right? Um, and not coincidentally, or, or coincidentally that it happened, but, but interestingly as well, my wife went to Disney World last week. Mm-hmm. Uh, and my wife, you know, being, so being a travel agent, she spends a lot of time in front of the computer, right? Um, and then in addition to being a travel agent, she also has a job, two jobs actually, with this uh, Chinese company that tutors kids who are in China in English. Um, and they do it via a software it's a propriety software, but it's but it's similar to Skype, and so she spends a whole lot of time like crunched in front of the the, the computer because when you're on Skype teaching somebody, you can't stand up, right. right? You can't move around all that much because it's you know it's on your face, um, and so she she not only tutors the kids, but she also actually mentors new teachers with that, and so again she's kind of crunched in, so she does that hours, one hours, and hours a week, and she was saying that that. She went to Disney World last weekend, and they walked all over Epcot, and they walked all sorts of various places. She didn't have my sons with her, and so so her and her, her friend that went... Um, so not like bending over, grabbing... Right, right. And, and, and they were able to cover more ground. Yeah. And she said that, that after like 24 hours of being there, she said she felt her body like un, like 
unwind. Like the chest opens up. Yeah, like everything. everything. Yeah. Like, she, like she felt like she was. I'm, I'm, I'm using this hand motion that totally explains it, but mm-hmm. can't quite see it. Sorry, podcast listeners. <laughs> um, but, but she said that everything just kind of started to loosen and to space out, and like everything that had been all crunched together because she hunches so much over the computer starts to spread out. Um, and so I, I think that the, the idea of just spending a lot of time walking, standing around. Um, you know, we, we, we talked about how, okay, so standing is not necessarily the solution for sitting, you know, so, but, but maybe walking is, you mm-hmm. know, he was saying that he has them spend two hours going out on a walk. My wife says that she uncrunches by walking. Um, my, my, my Achilles, which has been injured, feels a whole lot better because I've been walking a lot mm-hmm. perhaps, you know, so, um, I do think there's something to that. Um, and I like, I like that part of it. I've been thinking a lot about that. Mm-hmm. Um, so be sure to, to let us know if you have questions. Um, uh, I, I, I like what Pete had to say. I thought it was a good interview. I thought it was very interesting. Um, and, and I super agree with, with, with Patrick about the way that I like that crossover that, you know, he can talk about the way that he trains runners who are Olympic trials qualifiers. Um, and we can say we train our runners the same way. And I think that's cool. I think it's mm-hmm. great. Um, um, but it is different. Um, yeah. and, and, and he's, and he's a different coach. And so, so by all means, let us know those questions, reach out to us via email or, or Facebook or Twitter or whatever, and ask us those questions. Um, so let's talk a little bit about, um, the podcast itself here. We, we decided that we we're going to slightly change up the, the format of our podcast here such that rather than having news and research and then having the topic that we're going to discuss, we're going to start alternating weeks such that we're going to talk about the news and research and then we're going to come back the following week and we're going to talk about the topic. And so this week um, is going to be news and research week. And so we'll mm-hmm. talk about some of the recent uh, news and some recent research and all that sort of thing. And then rather than kind of making a transition and having this, this really long podcast that then will go into the topic... Um, we're going to record a second one in which we don't talk about news and research where we just kind of jump directly into the topic. And so that's what we're going to be doing for next week. We'll, uh, we'll talk about uh, some of training or some, yeah, some training principles uh, that, that we generally adhere to inside of ITL and, and in our life more at large. Um, but this is news and research week. So who's going first? Who did we say? I think you're going first. I'm going first. Oh, you're, we sure? Because I've been talking a lot of course the last while. <laughs> it's okay. It's a podcast. <laughs> All right. Yeah, true, true. I guess we always do. So, um, but I do want to hear what you had to say about this piece of news. So, so the piece of news I'm going to share this week um, has to do with the Strava heat maps mm-hmm. um, that I imagine that, that a lot of people saw. Now, now the new Strava heat maps were, were, were released uh, about a week ago. Um, and for those who aren't aware, um, well, two things. First of all, Strava is uh, like the Facebook for endurance athletes, right? Correct. Uh, and so when you go on, you go on Strava, you upload the activity that you did um, and uh, the GPS file of what you did, or you can put in a manual activity if you went to the weight room or something else like that. And and it will give you a breakdown of all the data, and it will map out where it is. And then you have course records and and uh, KOMs and all these various things that that people can challenge. Even if you don't know them, they can challenge each other to, to try and beat. Um, and then, of course, you can see your your friends, your, your followers on Strava, they're called. Um, they can see what you do, and they can they can compliment the workout that you did, and they can they can um, uh, uh, give you kudos, it's called, which is sort of the, the, the Strava equivalent of likes and all that sort of thing. Well, what that means is you can imagine since you have uh, millions of people using Strava, uploading all this GPS data... Um, is that Strava has a massive amount of data about where people around the world are exercising. 
Um, and so a few years ago, they released what was called their heat map. Uh, and their heat map basically shows, okay, this is where all these Strava users are going. And you can imagine places like Kennesaw Mountain where we do our trail run or various tracks like the Lakeside High School track where we do our track workout. Um, those showed up as being hotter places than places where people aren't really right. Like it's a much. bright like orange streak on the uh, <laughs> yeah. map. Yeah. Right. Yeah. And so, so, um, anyway, um, and it's, it's kind of fascinating because you look at it and you see, wow, there's a lot of people who, who run where I run or don't run where I run. Um, and you can sort of look at these big concentrations and you can see there's a whole lot of people who run here and not a whole lot of people who run in these other places. So anyway. And it kind of helps give you an idea of like, oh, I didn't even think to run there. All right, well, a lot of people are doing it, so like there must be a reason. Let me try that trail or that For sure. That area. Yeah, when, I, when I've found myself going to a new place... And I'm like, okay, I need to run wherever it is I'm going to run. I'll pull up the heat map from that place. Mm-hmm. And you can see, okay, this is where people run here. Yes. Um, and and that will let you know, okay, this is where I'm going to go map out my run for today. And it's particularly helpful, kind of as you mentioned, if you're in a new city mm-hmm. and you don't know where there's sidewalks, where there are not sidewalks. Exactly. So you can kind of see, okay, nobody's running on this road. There must be a reason. There must be some blind turns here. Right. So. Right. It's great. It's great. Now, privacy advocates have, a, have an issue with that, and we'll talk a little bit more about that in just a minute here. But anyway, um, so Strava released their new heat maps this week. Um, and, and to give you an idea, their heat maps are based on one billion activities, more than a billion activities that, that their Strava users have uploaded, uh, accounting for about three trillion, three trillion with a T, latitude and longitude points, about 13 trillions uh, of pixels, um, 10 terabytes of raw input data, um, uh, and a total distance of 17 billion miles, 17 billion miles worth of activities that their people have done, and a total recorded activity time of 200,000 years. <laughs> Gosh. So, so if you if you if you take the amount of time that every Strava user has exercised over the course of the beginning of Strava, um, it's two hundred thousand years. Um, yeah, which is just a massive amount of time. And so you're talking about just you know a, an incredible amount of data. Uh, and so from that, you know, you have these heat maps, which are which are super cool and have showed all this stuff. Mm-hmm. Um, now, pretty soon, and, and of course people see them and they're really fascinating. There's a, a, a friend of Mars from Atlanta, uh, a friend of the podcast named John Rutledge, who's uh, very active and, and one of the leaders of the Atlanta Triathlon Club. And he pointed out that, that you could see on there these lines in the Caribbean Sea, mm-hmm. um, uh, like between here and the Bahamas, it suggests, okay, those are the people who are running on cruise ships. Like That's stuff like that. fascinating. Oh, yeah. Uh, just totally cool, right? I, when you said that, I was like, why would somebody be... Okay. I mean, yeah. that must be what it is, right? Yeah. Uh, unless people are doing open water swims, like, you know, 15 miles off the coast of the Bahamas. But um, but anyway, um, and so in looking at this, pretty soon, only about 24 to 48 hours after this was put out, there was a Twitter user in Australia who found that there were members of the military who were uploading from military installations. Um, and ultimately, over time, more people kind of got in on it, and you started to realize that there were all these kind of covert places, including, like, some CIA black sites. Yes. Where people are going for a run and uploading it to Strava and so it's appearing on the Strava heat map. Mm-hmm. Right. <laughs> um, and and what's more, um, two things. Number one, because a lot of uh, military, particularly like secret military places or places where the military is doing things that are confidential are in developing countries. There's not a whole lot of people running in those developing countries and so you can see those things. Um, That's and, a great and point. Even like the outlines of the military installations, you can see exactly where they are. Um, and then in addition, if you on the heat map, you could actually click on parts of the heat map, and it would tell you the names of the people who have been running in that area. 
And so potentially um, somebody who wants to do harm or somebody who wants to gather information on a particular important operative inside the, the, the American uh, military structure could potentially say, okay, I'm going to follow um, John Smith here and see where it is he's running. Oh, now he's running in France. Right. And so, so now that he's running in France, it must mean he's moved to France. It must mean the United States is, is has some information about something going. On. Do you see what I'm saying? You're right. And so, so all sorts of like like secret things that 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 are being revealed by the fact that Straub that Straub is gathering all this data and and just uploading where people run. Um, so now, in Straub's defense. You don't have to upload to Strava when you run. <laughs> that, yes. <laughs> you know? And so, so, so maybe the policy should be, hey, people working at CIA black sites, don't upload your data to Strava. <laughs> right. Don't use a GPS recording device. Right. Um, but in a statement, uh, the, the CEO of Strava, a guy named James Quarles, um, he said that, quote, members in the military, humanitarian workers, and others living abroad may have shared their location in areas without other activity density and, in doing so, inadvertently increased awareness of sensitive locations. Many team members at Strava and in our community, including me, have family members in the armed forces. Please know that we are taking this matter seriously and understand our responsibility related to the data that you share with us. Uh, he went on to say that Strava was, quote, communicated to working with military and government officials to address potentially sensitive data. Um, and then uh, he went on to add that the country company was, quote, reviewing features that were originally designed for athlete motivation and inspiration to ensure they cannot be compromised by people with bad intent. Um, and he said they wanted to simplify the pri- privacy and safety features so that people would know that they're inadvertently sharing right. potentially confidential and, and information that could be used for, for harmful intent. Um, <laughs> so they're, they're, I, I, I don't want to laugh about it, but I kind of do, just because it's something about it feel, feels. Hashtag twenty eighteen, yeah, right. So I, yeah, I have several takeaways. So one, Strava is the exact like we say it's the Facebook for runners, but it's not like Facebook. You don't have your grandparents sharing like political stories every day on mm-hmm. your newsfeed. Right. It's not like Twitter. Twitter is where love and compassion go to die. Right. Like it's <laughs> like just. If you tell me we're going to post something on Twitter, I would be like, okay, what is a troll going to say? Like, I would, it would be very controlled, and I would be very suspicious about posting anything on Twitter. Mm-hmm. I mean, you couldn't post something like, hey, you know, there's a theory of gravity. Like, that would receive like a hundred <laughs> dislikes and arguments. Strava is the opposite. Yeah. Like, if you post, hey, I ran in Kennesaw Mountain, even if you post like, hey, I did, I did terrible, I people would offer encouragement. Yeah, it's I a agree. very encouraging site. I've yeah. almost never seen negativity on Strava. So I could almost see why somebody would not think in a uh, strategic way what's the worst thing that can happen yeah. to, when I post on Strava. Because it's you don't go into that, you don't go into Strava with a suspicious mindset. It's yeah. very collaborative. It's very supportive. Yeah. I love it. I mean, I just found, I just started using it last year. I so. And I think it's really enhanced my life as an endurance athlete. Mm-hmm. And it's just funny how, you know, when you don't go into a suspicious frame of mind, all of a sudden yeah. you're like... Oh, wait a minute. Yeah, you, I, mean, I never. You, even, uh, yeah, you go in thinking that everybody's supportive and great, and it's like, oh, wait a minute. Yeah, some people aren't supportive and great on Strava, or at least you know they're on Strava in order to do nefarious things. Right. I mean, sometimes the most obvious realities are hidden in plain sight. Right. You yeah, know? I think that's a good point. No, we've I've talked on the podcast before, and I've had several conversations with people about how Strava can be difficult um, or can be problematic if you use it like to to if you end up running your easy runs too fast. Mm-hmm. Um, um, or you end up pushing on your on your zone two rides. You end up going too hard because you're trying to get some some course record. Or you're trying to go you know three seconds faster than this other guy you know or something like that. It can be bad, 
Um, but but I agree with you on balance. I think the strava is a good thing. And I enjoy it. Mm-hmm. I think it's fun. And yeah, I mean, I I did I did an activity yesterday, an indoor bike ride yesterday, and twenty five people have gone on there and clicked like and given me kudos, and mm-hmm. it's great, right? It's fun. Um, Wired magazine, like how you said hashtag two thousand eighteen. Wired magazine uh, was talking about it and said, "quote The Strava incident uh, is just the latest and perhaps most spectacular example." of how social media can compromise the operation security of even the most sensitive military and intelligence agencies. Analysts and journalists have previously tracked the locations of soldiers, such as Russian troops in the Ukraine, based on selfies and other public data shared on social media. Back in 2007, Iraqi insurgents used geotagged photos shared on social media of U.S. Army attack helicopters landing in an airbase to pinpoint and destroy four of the expensive war machines in a mortar attack. Unquote. Right. And so so I, I think it's kind of interesting that... that you know, okay, so Strava, like you say, even though it feels different, it's still social media and it still can be used in in these ways to accomplish malintent. Yeah. Um, all right. Uh, but all that being said, check out the heat map because it is super cool. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> yeah, it's fun. Uh, tell us about your news. So my news, actually, it uh, does involve the U.S. Army a bit. Um, <laughs> Emmanuel Bohr of the U.S. Army became the 500th American to run a sub-four-minute miler. He ran a 358 at the BU Terrier Classic in Boston. So that is fantastic news that we have 500 people run a sub-four-minute mile. Absolutely. Um, in America. Now, a few stats. Of the 500 sub-four-minute American milers, 241 of them have been indoors. They've been run on an indoor track, which makes a lot of sense because then it's a controlled environment, um, so it can be mu- it can be much faster. And you know, if you're going simply for time, you can say, all right, we want to run at you know in Boston, indoors. We don't want to uh, be subject to weather. Um, in fact, some have actually credited the spike in sub-fours to the availability availability of fast indoor tracks in the past 20 years or so. And it kind of gets back to your point about Peter Ray, where as we continue to invest in the endurance community and in kind of professional runners, you do see a spike, right? You do see an increase in, uh, in performance. You know, mm-hmm. you know, human activity and human athletic achievement does not happen in a vacuum. Mm-hmm. Um, and then the, some of the top four sites for sub-four-minute miles are Seattle, Eugene, Boston, and Notre Dame. And then Fayetteville, New York, and Philadelphia are all tied for fifth. Hmm. So for those of you who follow track and field, you know Eugene, that's Oregon. And then like Seattle, Boston, um, New York, Philly, those have some big meets. So they, they attract a lot of fast people. Yeah, I was thinking about that actually when, when I was talking about Zap Fitness's results last week. Mm-hmm. Um, after, after the interview with Pete, and I was talking about how, you know, how fast some of them had run mm-hmm. at these races where they finished third, fourth visit. You know, and, yeah. and um, he mentioned... Um, um, uh, Matt McClintock a couple of times who who was working in the background when he was there and right. how he had run the Houston Marathon and had run 102.30 which is you know fantastic and it didn't look trials qualifying time for the half marathon um, for the marathon via the half marathon um, you know fantastic time he didn't say and I'm I, I'm okay with the fact he didn't say that, that Matt McClintock finished like 25th in that race right you know so 25th with a 102.30 um, you know the, uh, a lot of pro athletes they seek out these fast races, um, mm-hmm. and and winning the race eh, that that matters less than actually running the fast time. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, it's it's fun to point out too. You know, case in point, um, the 499th person from the United States, 
uh, to break uh, the 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 four minute mile was also in that race. <laughs> really? <laughs> yeah. And so so he finished. He won the race. A guy named Shadrach Kipcher. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, oh, you're right. A, a yeah, naturalized American citizen. Yeah. He he won the race <laughs> mm-hmm. uh, and ran three fifty five. And then then uh, Emmanuel Bohr comes in. You know what? Three seconds later, uh-huh. and, and and becomes a five hundred. <laughs> and then there was somebody point one seconds behind Emmanuel Bohr. So they were five hundred and one. Right. <laughs> you couldn't give a little more effort to right. be number five hundred, <laughs> right? right. Yeah, so, so yeah, so Bohr ended up getting a five hundred dollar bonus, which is five hundred dollars is not nearly enough, but he got a five hundred dollar bonus for becoming the five hundredth American uh, to run under four minutes. Um, but uh, but but yeah, so if the, if the if the other guy hadn't won the race, he could have picked up that five hundred dollar bonus, even though he probably picked up more money for winning the race than, than uh, he would have otherwise. Uh, yeah, so very good. Um, very good. Uh, the four-minute mile still remains. I mean, it's still... It, it happens... And I mean, 500 Americans have now done it. I mean, it happens enough that 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 we're like, oh, okay, well, you know, it's it's, it's something that happens. It's 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 still a big deal. Yeah. Um, now, you mentioned the 490th guy, right? Yeah, so a uh, friend of the pod, uh, Brandon Hudgens, was number 448. So he, he lives in Boone. He trains with Zap Fitness. And in 2015... He became the 448th person to run a sub four minute mile. Mm-hmm. Um, Brandon's a good guy, good friend. No one has overcome more than Brandon uh, to do what he's do what he's done. So, um, and then I also, he got to run his first uh, competitive race in a while yesterday. Um, he I saw he posted online that he was uh, disappointed in his effort. But Brandon, you got a a lot of big fans here in Atlanta, so keep on keeping on. You know. Right on, man. Maybe we can get him coming on the podcast pretty soon. Yeah. Cool. Very good. Very good. Um, well, so speaking of runners running fast, I'll have one more quick piece of news. Um, and that was that uh, a couple of weeks ago, uh, there was a new record set uh, for the girls' high school 5,000 meters. Um, so high school girls' American record in the 5,000 meters. Take a second and think. 5K, American girl, high school girl, she's a sophomore. How fast did she run? Take a second and think about your guess of how fast she ran. Time's up. Yeah. She ran 15.37. Um, so, yeah, stunningly fast. Um, it was a girl named Caitlin Tui, um, who is, is um, she's won uh, Foot Locker cross country a couple of, I mean, she's you know, a brilliant uh, athlete. Uh, she missed the, the 3K, 3,000 uh, meter in uh, record uh, by a second in a race a couple of weeks ago. Um, and then she... By a pretty solid margin, um, uh, beat Mary Kane's record by running 15:37. Um, she ran 4:54 for the first mile, five minutes for the second mile, 5:06 for the third mile. So she's kind of fading there in the last half. And when they talked to her about it, she said she went out a little bit too fast, and that was uh, probably cost her in the end. So she probably could have even run a little bit faster than 15:37. So pretty amazing for uh, a high school sophomore, 15, 16 years old, um, to run 15:37. Um, that is, you know, better than the standard to get into that fitness, uh, as a matter of fact, as mm-hmm. a post-collegiate runner. Um, it will be interesting to see, and I think it should be said, um, what happens with her in the future. Um, you know, we, we wish her a lot of success, obviously. We want her to be a world beater. Um, but you do kind of wonder about um, athletes who, who run that fast that early. Yes. Um, particularly girls. Um, and so, so we'll see. Um, Mary Kane, whose record she broke... Um, went on to, to make a, a final at the World Championships as a 17-year-old. Um, and she's been kind of injured and, and underperforming for the last couple of years now. Mm-hmm. Now I want to say she's about 20 years old. Um, so we'll see what ends up happening. But 
Um, but yeah, congrats to Caitlin Tui, uh, and we of course wish her uh, continued success. Yeah, it's uh, always exciting. It gets back to our kind of our original uh, conversation, where the, the more people you have running fast in the country, the more the the faster the fast runners will be. Absolutely. Yeah, I couldn't agree more. Yeah, she was. I mean, she was in a fast race. I mean, she she uh, she ran off and won the race. You know, she she ran solo the whole time. But but there were several other high school girls who were under seventeen minutes in that race. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, running in the 16s for a high school girl. I mean, it's pretty incredible. Yeah. Um, very good. Uh, well, let's talk about some research. Take it away, Gwen. Sure. So my research uh, came from uh, the NIH um, this week. So it seems that everyone and their grandmother seems to believe that running is bad for the joints. You know, whenever I tell people I'm a runner, that everybody always says, oh, well, you know, how do your knees hold up? Are right. you? Do you have arthritis? Right. You know. Yeah. Um, no, whenever I see somebody from high school, they're always like, they're always like, oh, do you still? First of all, they say, do you still jog? No. Yeah. I, I still run, uh, and they say, and and they say, well, well, how are your knees? Your knees have held up this time. It's like I've knock on wood, I've never had a problem with my knees. Yeah. Um, yeah, me neither. I've never had any knee issues. Um, but anyways, that's kind of the go-to question that you get from non-runners right off the bat is is about the knees. Um, even or, though, or, or or they'll say I can't run because of my knees. Right. Even though a number of studies have shown uh, no evidence of increased knee problems among typical runners. Um, so today, the kind of the modern view holds that excess, maybe excess body weight and too little exercise, are the big culprits underlying knee and hip arthritis. Mm-hmm. Um, so research published in the Knee Surgery Sports uh, Traumatology uh, Arthroscopy. That's a quite a mouthful there. <laughs> I was going to say. Um, <laughs> Uh, you know, very, very niche. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Right. Um, you, you know what they're going for. You know what they're going for. You know, this is not where you publish like, you know, arm injuries. Um, uh, let's see. They, they produced some results finding that runners knees remain essentially unchanged by training for and completing a first marathon. So that was done before this study I'm talking about now. And they just said, well, when somebody starts training for a marathon, do we see increased knee pain or increase, you know, or changes in the knee structure? And they concluded that high-impact forces during long-distance running are well-tolerated even in marathon beginners and do not lead to clinically relevant cartilage loss. So there already was some evidence mm-hmm. that uh, you know, running does not lead to, to, to knee pain or, or knee arthritis. So anyway, so the study that I'm discussing uh, today uh, was published in you know, just this month. Um, and it, they, what they did is they looked at uh, marathoners with a mean age of 48 years old, so people who have been running marathons, and they wanted to see was there an increased uh, prevalence of hip or knee arthritis, and, and not not young people, right? Forty eight years old. I think that's important, right? Yeah. Mm-hmm. But arthritis was only reported by eight point nine percent of marathoners. That does not in any way suggest that there are high amounts of hip or or knee arthritis within active marathoners or people who have run marathoners right. for a number marathons for a number of years right um so it really just kind of starts to kind of put one more nail in the coffin in the idea that running causes hip or knee pain Mm -hmm. um they looked at age and family and surgical history as um independent risk factors for arthritis Mm -hmm. and they concluded that there was no significant risk associated with running duration intensity mileage or the number of marathons completing completed when looking at the risk of hip and knee arthritis Mm -hmm. So, uh, and then, of course, they looked at um, running history in general, and they found that there was no correlation with running history and reported hip or knee pain. Hmm. 
So, um, and then of course they found that in this cohort of people, the arthritis rate of active marathoners was below that of the general United States. Hmm. So long story short, um, if you look at marathoners, they tend to have a lower rate of hip and arthritis pain mm-hmm. than the general uni- general public. Mm-hmm. Now, that obviously, some people may say, well, of course, because if you have knee and hip pain, you won't, you run. won't run. Right. Um, so they, they, they did warn that there needs to be some more longitudinal follow-up to determine if the effects of marathon running, um, you know, kind of hone in more on what the effects of running are on developing future hip and knee um, arthritis. Mm-hmm. However... Uh, as I mentioned before, there have been studies before which were more longitudinal, and they found that um, marathon running and long-distance running did not indeed seem to increase mm-hmm. the prevalence of hip and knee pain, yeah. arthritis yeah. specifically, among older individuals. Now, now, if you do have knee pain as a runner or hip pain as a runner, we're not giving you a hard time here. Um, because, yes. But, but, but what we would say is that it, while, while it might be bothered by your running, your running is not necessarily the cause of it. Yeah, and so that, so that's one thing. I'm glad you mentioned that. So a giant disclaimer. If you are in pain, do not ignore it. This is not saying just keep going, it's all in your head. This is to simply say um, running is not believed to be a significant – there have not been much evidence that shows running is a significant um, cause or contributor mm-hmm. to hip or knee pain. Yeah, yeah. There also was a previous study which kind of looked, which was a, a meta-analysis, which is an academic way of reviewing and compiling previous studies. Mm-hmm. And in the meta-analysis, it was published in the Journal of Orthopedic and Sports Physical Therapy. People who ran competitively or not at all, middle of the um, they looked at those two groups. They also looked at middle-of-the-pack athletes, you know, just kind of runners who do 5Ks, 10Ks, but aren't kind of like going for the Olympics or and they found that people who just kind of did the, the 5Ks, 10Ks, marathons, etc., they had lower rates of osteoarthritis than those who were not active at all. Hmm. Um, so, you know, I thought that's once again kind of further proof or further evidence, I should say, not proof, hmm. but evidence that this kind of idea that, oh, running causes hip or knee arthritis. Yeah, yeah. And so it's I think, not so much the case. Yeah, and so I think one of the big takeaways from it is is um, is that for people who are not running, well, well, two things, I think. Number one, for people who are not running, and the reason why they're not running is because they're like, oh, it would it would destroy my knees. There's actually not evidence that running is going to destroy your knees or your hips right. would cause arthritis or something right. like that. I feel like all this pounding on my body would cause arthritis. Yeah, no, there's no evidence of that. Right. Um, I think that's important. And number two, um, for those of you who are currently running and you're worried about it, don't worry about it. Right um, now, it could happen. Don't get me wrong; you might end up getting arthritis, but 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 the the it's, it's not necessarily going to happen as a result of your running. Right, um, and I, I know that's something I've worried about actually, mm-hmm. um, because because yeah, I've run so much, and I'm like, what am I going to be like when I'm seven years old? Right, you know, like the the last few months, of my Achilles was bothering me. I was having to limp around so much, and I was like, I'm 43 years old, and I'm going to limp around like this. What's going to happen when I'm 73? Right, you know, and 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 okay, so that but that's just an acute thing. It was just mm-hmm. one injury. Um, you know, it's not necessarily going to mean that I'm going to be completely decrepit when I'm old. <laughs> right. And, and that's, that's strangely comforting. Um, yeah. Um, very good. Thanks for that. Um, the one that I wanted to share, the one piece of research I wanted to share, uh, is actually from the Journal of Applied Physiology. Um, and it's a, it's a new study. It only came out uh, within the last uh, couple of months here. Um, and uh, what they did is they, they found 21 people who completed the 2016 Boston Marathon. Um, and mm-hmm. then they convinced them to quit running for eight weeks. 
Um, and they wanted to see what happened when, when that happened. Now, it was funny because the, they, they had a write-up of this in, in Runner's World. And, and they said they found 2000, you know, 21 runners who they somehow convinced to stop running for eight weeks. I, I don't feel like after completing a marathon, you had to work all that hard to convince me to stop running for a little while. But anyway. I, I uh, almost wonder whether they used this bribery. Like, <laughs> right. one Hershey's candy bar? Like. <laughs> yeah. Um, so anyway, so this group of people, over the course of that eight weeks, they went from averaging about 32 miles a week down to less than four miles a week. Um, they said, okay, you don't have to stop running and exercising entirely, but we want you to do less than two hours worth of exercise a week, and we want you to do nothing over one hour in, in, in duration. Um, so you can do as many things as you want, but not a total of more than two hours and no single activity more than one hour. Mm-hmm. Um, and then they measured them uh, and see, saw how they detrained over time. Um, and they found... Um, Interestingly, the first thing that kind of went away, uh, and they were more interested in their heart, by the way, I should say, uh, but they found that, the, that pretty soon, after only a couple of weeks, uh, they found that they, they, the runners had significant drops in their blood volume and their plasma volume, and the left ventricle of their heart decreased in mass and thickness. Um, their blood volume overall decreased by 3.6%. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so what that means is that the oxygen-carrying capacity of their blood went down pretty quickly. Um, that That... Uh, your your body's ability to quickly and efficiently get blood and oxygen to your working muscles it, it dropped pretty quickly within those mm-hmm. first couple of weeks there um, and what that would mean in, in effect would mean that, that if you tried to go out and run hard it would feel a whole lot harder yes like like a given pace would feel significantly harder and your heart rate would be up much higher as a result of that even though only 2 to 3 weeks earlier you had run that pace for an entire marathon right uh, and that's of course because, of course because less oxygen is reaching those working muscles per heartbeat uh, than had been the case at the time of the marathon right um, now also interestingly and importantly the runner's max vo2 um did not go down. Their mm-hmm. total hemoglobin mass, which is a measure of their red blood cells, um, that didn't go down either. And so even though their total blood volume went down, um, it's almost as if their blood got thicker a little bit um, because cause the, the, the red blood cell intensity or density did not go down. They didn't decline during the study themselves. And so these important big measures of how fast you're going to be able to run in the future, they didn't go away. Right. even though these folks were hardly exercising for, for eight weeks. Um, there's lots of other things. Admittedly, they didn't measure. Um, and and there's been other studies that have shown that if you just flat do nothing, um, then then your your fitness will decline much more precipitously. So so there's, I guess, two big takeaways here as, as we think about this study. Um, one, I think, and I'm interested to hear what Patrick has to say too, is that doing a little bit of exercise in recovery is good. And it doesn't even have to be a lot. I mean, these folks are doing less than two hours a week for eight weeks. Right. Um, but yet they found that these important markers didn't drop. Um, and number two, and I think this is far more important, um, is that in those first couple of weeks, you lose something pretty quickly. Mm-hmm. And, you, and you will feel that loss. Yeah. Um, you know, if, if, you, if you do a marathon and you take some time off and then you go out and you try and do some strides, you're going to be bent over breathing hard and you're going to be cursing the fact that, that, that you can't, that, that you lost all this fitness. Um, but it's important to know the important things aren't gone. Right. Your fitness has not disappeared. It's just that this one particular aspect of fitness has gone away that you'll be able to get back and then of course build up even higher. Mm-hmm. Um, and so, so you're going to lose something quickly. You're going to feel like you lost everything quickly, uh, but right. you haven't lost it. The important things are still there. Right. Um, yeah. Thoughts on that one? Yeah, I always think of tra- like a training cycle. We've talked about periodization before. It's almost like building a pyramid. You start mm-hmm. with the base and you kind of layer on mm-hmm. you know, different breaks and different yeah. layers as you kind yeah. of build the different systems. 
And when you take off time, you essentially skim off that, that top point or mm-hmm. so. Yeah. But the base is still there. Right. The problem is that base is great for then kind of recharging and getting mm-hmm. back into training mode, but it does not mean you're going to be able to bust out a fast 5K. Right. Or, you know, when you right. lose that that edge, that, that top 5 to 10%, yeah. when you really look at it, now you're going from a... You know, sixteen five k to a seventeen or something mm-hmm. like that. And I'm just pulling out numbers, mm-hmm. you know, and so it really does feel like it's a lot worse than it actually is. Mm-hmm. But then you can kind of regenerate a lot of that fitness quickly. For the sure. problem is when you lose that edge in athletics, it's all about an edge. It's right. all about well, I finished this place or I have this time. Right. So when you kind of shave off that that top point, so to speak, it feels like a huge loss. Yeah. And it feels harder too. Yes. And so, so, so you go from that 16 to that 17 or from, from that 25 to that 27, 5k, yeah. you know, and it feels worse. Yes. <laughs> like yeah. your legs aren't in, aren't in rhythm yeah. and you're kind of, yeah. 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 Um, but to, you know, to stick with your pyramid metaphor though, that, that, so, so that the pointy part, the very top of the pyramid is gone, but then when you start rebuilding, you rebuild, you add to that foundation as well. Mm-hmm. So the foundation is still there. You add to that foundation and then you're able to ultimately build up even higher than you were before. Exactly. Um, and I, I think that's, that's, that's an important part of it. And as we talked about with Pete, you know, um, uh, what was his, his quotation? Recovery is not the absence of training, but it's a fundamental part of training. Exactly. Um, that, that. A lot of times people don't want to, to recover. They don't want to take some time off because they're like, oh, you know, I've, I've worked all so hard to get in shape for the Boston Marathon and, and now I don't want to take time off because I'm, I'm worried I'm going to lose some fitness. You are going to lose a little bit of fitness. Um, but as this study demonstrates, and you're going to feel it. Yeah. And, you're, and, and so two weeks later, you're going to feel that loss of fitness and you're going to be mad at yourself because you feel like you've just lost everything that you worked for for 16 weeks or six months or however long it was um, or years and years and years. Um, and, and in fact, you haven't lost that stuff. Mm-hmm. You've only lost that really, that really tip top edge, as mm-hmm. you said. Yeah. Uh, and so that's super important. Mm-hmm. Um, very good. Um, well, Patrick, that's going to wrap us up then on news and research for this week, right? I guess it is. Yeah. All right. So make sure that you uh, make sure that you tune in next week. As we mentioned, the new format here, uh, we'll talk about news and research one week, and then we'll turn it over to uh, the topic in the following week. So uh, get with us next week and listen to us talk about uh, the basic training principles for ITL coaching and performance, and for the athletes that we coach. Thanks again for joining us. That's it for another installment of the Most Pleasant Exhaustion Podcast. Thanks again for joining us here. You can reach out to us on Twitter, at Pleasant Podcast. Uh, you can find our blog, mostpleasantexhaustion.blogspot.com, or you can reach out to us on Facebook, facebook.com slash pleasantpodcast. Any questions about anything we talked about today, any questions, follow up uh, for our interview with Pete Ray from last week, uh, be sure to let us know. Um, itlcoaching.com is where you can find ITL Coaching and Performance, our sponsor. Uh, you can also find them on Twitter, at ITL Coaching, and on Facebook, facebook.com slash ITL Coaching and Performance. 
And finally, don't forget about my wife, the Travel Planner, facebook.com slash kctravelplannermev. Uh, you can also reach out to her on email at kctravelplanner at gmail.com. She is finishing up her website right now. And so when our podcast comes out next week, I will be sure to share her brand new web address with you. Uh, and we will have a new episode next week. And so uh, be sure to tune in for that with our new format here. Uh, on behalf of Patrick Hollander, this is George Darden. Thanks again for listening to the Most Pleasant Exhaustion Podcast.